it's always uh, useful to consider just why it is we do this practice. <clears throat> and if we went around the room and I asked you, well, why are you here? Uh, there would be a big, a great variety of uh, reasons and conditions, causes and conditions that uh, we're all here. But somewhere in the area of overlap of everything that we uh, might <clears throat> see as the reason for being here is some degree of unhappiness, uh, suffering, uh, the idea or the possibility of things being better. Um, we, we come here with some uh, aspiration or some goal, interest. <clears throat> and in the midst of our daily practice of just getting through from wake up till bedtime, we can get pretty caught up in the minutia of our mind. And we can get pretty entangled in, you know, uh, memories and aches and pains in the body and uh, motivation. And we can lose perspective on the bigger picture. So tonight I want to speak a little bit about uh, the context in which we're doing all this work. <clears throat> it's important to, to understand that uh, we're, we're doing this practice not just, not just to follow the breath or not just to, uh, not just to remember to recognize the present moment's experience, but really there's another context, there's a bigger picture that is being fulfilled or being addressed uh, by our work here. And we can get a glimpse of, of that when we look at what the, what the Buddha spoke about after his awakening. If we remember that the Bodhisattva, the one who was to become the Buddha, uh, living in the protected enclave of his parents' wealthy household, maybe royal, we're not sure. Um, at some point, his karmic propulsion, the karma of his bodhisattva vow, uh, had him wander outside of the protection of his family's enclave. And we can understand this in ourselves is the, the Bodhisattva left the protection of his uh, conditioning, of his family and cultural conditioning, and he went into the world, went into the nearby village, and he saw, not with his eyes, but with his heart, with his wisdom, he saw that beings uh, grew old, got sick, and died. And we know that. We know, we know people grow old, get sick, and die. But he saw it with an understanding of just how much suffering that is, how much terror that can cause in the mind, uh, and how much uh, 
it's inevitable and how much it preoccupies our life. And he saw that from a, from a place of understanding. And it was intolerable for him to then continue to live uh, in the distraction of pleasure, pleasurable experiences. It just became impossible for him to uh, enjoy indulging in the pleasures that his parents offered him. Now, we might say, yeah, well, I mean, you know, we're probably living as good or better uh, materially than the Bodhisattva was then. And we have extraordinary um, conditions. You know, as, as, as difficult as it might be for any one of us right now, we're living at the top of the heap of all humanity, of all the billions of humans that have lived on the face of the earth. We're living in the, the best conditions possible as far as material uh, health, wealth, uh, opportunities, and yet, even with all of that, there's something that gnaws away at us inside that says, you know, we're stressed, we're anxious, we're fearful, we're depressed, or, you know, it's, it's not okay. It's, it's, even with all this, it's not okay. And we keep looking, and we keep searching, and we keep thinking there's something else somewhere that is going to fulfill this vague, sometimes not very well articulated need that we, that we feel. So when the Bodhisattva saw, realized this, this level of suffering, uh, then he left uh, to undertake his spiritual practices. And after years of uh, learning and practicing what was available to him at that time, uh, he went on his own way, having realized that the best they had to offer was not liberation, was not freedom from suffering, was not uh, the end of suffering. And so he went on his own way, and through his own practice and through his own insight, and through the development of his own mind, he was able to come to another realization, a realization of the subtlety of what it means or how to be free of suffering. We have to remember that he was a human being. He endured the same kinds of physical ailments and uh, distresses like we do, uh, and yet he was still able to uh, understand the, the, the path and the way and the, the experience, the realization of the end of suffering. And I think that somewhere in the back of our mind, or maybe even in the forefront of our mind, we have some similar aspiration. How do we how do we navigate this human life uh, to, I don't want to just say maximum benefit so much as, how do, we, how do we not just enjoy it, not just to succeed, 
uh, not just to have everything we want, to do everything we want, but how to be really genuinely, authentically uh, at ease with this is the way it is. So the Buddha spoke about his realization after his awakening. Uh, and, you know, it is said that after his awakening under the uh, Bodhi tree, he considered what to do with his life and considered just wandering off into the Himalayas and uh, living happily or free of suffering by himself for the rest of his life. But he was prevailed upon by some heavenly being who said, you know, there are those among us that maybe have little dust in our eyes, maybe just are, just have a little bit of delusion, and maybe if we heard your teaching, we too could realize what you had realized. And the Buddha, it is said, thought about that, and he, he, he understood that the, the understanding, the realization he had come to, it's not that it was so esoteric and so grandiose and so magnificent and so powerful that, you know, people just couldn't grok it, but rather that it was so subtle. It was so subtle and in some ways so available that he considered that, you know, it would be very difficult, it would be very vexatious for him to have to try to share that with others so that they could possibly realize for themselves. So when we think about all this work we're doing and how seemingly hard it can be at times, well, what is what we're doing here have to do with what the Buddha realized and taught then and there. So that's what I want to speak about. After his awakening, the Buddha first spoke about the Four Noble Truths. I know many of you have heard the Four Noble Truths. You can probably give a good overview of the Four Noble Truths. But in the context of our experience here, it's good to keep them in mind, not as some philosophical or spiritual um, truth out there, but rather an experience that we have here. Because the Buddha didn't teach kind of metaphysical truths so much as a way of life, a way of living, inhabiting in some ways the Four Noble Truths. And so it's not like we have to believe this and you know kind of torture ourselves with uh, somehow this believing in this way, so much as taking guidance from the Four Noble Truths, pointing to these the important facts of life. And if we can understand these facts of life, and if we can see them in our own life, and live in alignment with them. Again, I'm speaking about the natural laws uh, that govern the unfolding of conditions. And the Four Noble Truths are just such natural laws. Uh, like the law of gravity, as I've mentioned. If we try to deny it or live on our own, outside of this law, we're going, to, we're going to suffer. And same with the Four Noble Truths. If we understand them and we live in, we move our life into alignment with them, then we suffer less. 
if we are in denial, avoidance, uh, confrontation with them, then we can be sure there's going to be some some friction there. The interesting thing is, as the Buddha's teachings uh, migrated from India, where he lived, to the surrounding areas of Tibet, China, and eventually to Southeast Asia, uh, Sri Lanka, China, Japan, Korea. As the teachings of the Buddha migrated through these other locations, it met with, or those teachings met with the indigenous uh, or the prevailing religion or spiritual tradition or shamanistic tradition, cultural tradition of those areas, met and merged, and now we have these unique and seemingly very different manifestations of the Buddhist teachings in Tibet, Japan, Burma, Thailand, and uh, they look quite different. They look quite, uh, you know, the, the, the behaviors, the rituals, the practices of uh, Tibetan lamas, Burmese Sayadas, Thai Ajans, Japanese Zen masters, and Chan masters from China look, look very different. And we might not recognize that they're so, that they all come from a common uh, realization that the Buddha had. There's an interesting story. Um, you might have heard of Deepama, the Bengali woman who was such a great uh, yogini in this tradition. When she when she practiced this meditation, she was just very had very quick access to deep concentration and deep and liberating insight. And but she was you know rather you know not illiterate, but she was not educated uh, Bengali woman. But she came to the states and taught a few times over at IMS. And at one time she was there when she was there. Some other teacher from another Buddhist tradition came to speak, and Deepama didn't know who they were and really what they were doing, but she went to listen to them speak, and her translator was her daughter, and she was listening, and, you know, uh, somewhere in the middle of the talk, Deepama said to her daughter, that, that speaker's a Buddhist. <laughs> the way they're talking is just like a Buddhist. So it, it's clear that whatever they were saying was something that she understood as being very similar to what she had uh, also practiced and realized, even though she didn't know that that was the tradition that they were from. So the, even as we come here to bring the teachings from the East to the West here, um, we practice differently uh, than uh, anywhere else. Similar to retreats in Burma, I suppose, or Thailand maybe. But uh, still, there's quite a lot of Western uh, influence. As the Buddhist teachings come to the West, it's meeting the prevailing uh, spiritual tradition traditions of, probably we'd have to say, psychotherapy and... Uh, Western scientific investigation. 
and maybe a little bit the other religions, but primarily Western science and, and psychotherapy. So uh, there will be, and there is emerging, a unique uh, Western articulation of the Dharma. And it's not going to look like what it uh, looks like in Burma, Thailand, Tibet, or Japan. It's going to be uniquely our own, but it may be several decades in the making. But we, practicing as we do here, are part of that uh, integration and evolution of how the Buddhist teachings are going to be carried on. And so it's important that we hear, uh, you know, the roots of our practice, uh, knowing that the appearance of our practice is going to be very different than all the sources that we've acquired the teachings from. But nevertheless, the teachings, the roots of the teachings in the Four Noble Truths, in the Eightfold Path, in the practice of the paramis and um, the different kinds of meditations is going to be sincere, it's going to be authentic, it's going to be, um, again, recognizable to any other Buddhist in any other cultural from any other cultural practice. So in that way it's important that we place our practice here in the context of the Four Noble Truths to see how the Four Noble Truths support this and how our practice affirms them so that in the future the Four Noble Truths will be recognized and still be available to to all of us. So the Buddha spoke of the Four Noble Truths because it was his realization of uh, liberation and the truths that needed to be uh, understood in order to free the heart from the suffering, the terror, the uh, oppression, the, the demands of the unsatisfactory conditions of this human life. <clears throat> so the first noble truth is called Dukkha Satcha. Dukkha means Dukkha, Satcha means the truth, so it's the truth of Dukkha. And Dukkha, when I first heard my first uh, teachings on the Four Noble Truth, I, I think it was said that Dukkha Satcha meant life is suffering. And I was 26 and full of it and I didn't you know as I mentioned I don't think I didn't think life was suffering I thought life was pretty good and uh, as I acknowledge here or to one of the groups that if I was suffering I would have had to consider myself a failure it was just that was the way that was that's my condition and I think a lot of us have that conditioning in spite of the obvious fact that we all suffer we still sometimes feel like we're not capable, we're not doing it right, uh, there's some inadequacy when we suffer, when we don't meet the grade of happiness that is uh, advertised as being possible. So it wasn't until I'd been practicing for 10 years and eventually got to Burma, and one of Upandita's translators didn't use the word suffering, he talked about dukkha as the oppressive nature of phenomena. And for some reason, I could get that. <laughs> you know, whether you're hungry, 
or hot or cold or tired or the body aches, it's pretty clear, oh, there's, it's oppressive. Life sometimes is oppressive. And so it was, it was for me an opening to what dukkha meant. And with that opening, then I could, I could grow, I, I grew in understanding of what my personal experience of dukkha was. And it took some time. But I'm really thankful for Dharma teachers, the Dharma teachers I had, uh, for bringing dukkha out of the closet, even though I didn't understand it. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, I, I grew up in a family with an alcoholic uh, parent, and you know, it was a pretty dysfunctional family. But do you think there was any dukkha talked about in our house? <laughs> my, my parents grew up at the time when if you didn't have anything tonight, you don't say anything at all. So we didn't say anything. You know? And, you know, I, I think it was really courageous of my Dharma teachers to say, you know, there's this first noble truth about dukkha and suffering, and even though I didn't get it. So what I saw from how difficult it was for me to open to what dukkha means is that I took it personally. Like, oh, this is my suffering. And because I personalized it, I didn't see the universal impact of what the Buddha was saying. It's like, this is a truth not just for people who are failures. This is a truth for everybody, all beings, experience dukkha. And it's not just, you know, those who grow up with an alcoholic parent. And because I was personalizing it, I I didn't see how, not, not just pervasive, but how far-reaching the Buddhist teaching actually was. So what does dukkha mean? The first uh, meaning is suffering, the obvious suffering of physical pain, mental pain, emotional pain, that we all experience. And we all experience the pain of hunger, uh, tiredness, uh, disease in the body, um, when we hurt ourselves, or when the body is hurt in some way, trauma, uh, we, we hurt, you know, it's hurt. Uh, we also experience the emotional, mental pain of loss, loneliness, uh, being discriminated against, feeling uh, vulnerable and insecure, um, feeling like we're uh, threatened in any way. And, and this is before we even have the reactions of aversion, desire, self-pity, jealousy, and all of that that also comes. And all of us in this room have experienced all of that at one time or another. It's, it's so obvious, isn't it? It's so obvious that we take it for granted like, This is an essential fact of life. Well, it is for all of us. And yet, it's hard to acknowledge, it's hard to imagine that there's another way of uh, living that didn't include that. And yet, this is what the Buddha realized. So this this teaching on dukkha, the first meaning of dukkha, it's the obvious physical, mental, (coughs) emotional pain that we all experience. There's a second flavor 
of dukkha to be uh, open to. And it has to do with the fact that things change. Everything changes. And what this means is that while we devote a considerable amount of our time and energy in life to trying to establish a sense of safety, security, stability, predictability in our relationships, with our finances, with our careers, with our governments, with our where we live, how we live. We, we really try to make things safe, secure, predictable, reliable, so that we'll be so that we'll feel safe. And that will contribute to our happiness and our sense of well-being. And it does. A lot. And yet, you remember, what, three years ago, a little more than three years ago, the community on the shores of the North Japanese island, living their life just as we're living our life, and all of their life and security and their homes and careers and their farms and their villages and their whole lifestyle was in one day uh, washed away. You know, the earth cracked, the tsunami washed in and washed out, the nuclear power plants kind of spewed their stuff and not only did everything get washed out, you can't live there for the next hundred years or two. They weren't, I mean, they did everything they could to stabilize their life, to make their life secure, safe, reliable, predictable, and yet, you can't, you can't insure against that. And so, we too have done what we can. And yet, we know somewhere, just on the periphery of our vision, that all of it is subject to change quickly and irre- irreversibly. And we know that. We, 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 we don't know what, we don't know how, we don't know when, but we know it's possible. And so we live with this level of insecurity, vulnerability, uh, potential that is just out of sight. And really, what can we do to insure against it, to inoculate ourselves from never having to experience that? can. And we know that. And even though we know that, we can't do really much about it. We have to live somewhere. And any one of us can have a personal tsunami come rolling through our life any day. Any day. And so we live with this level of vulnerability and insecurity and potential instability all the time. So this fact of life is hidden by uh, the pleasantness of what we're now experiencing. Things are pretty good right now. We're all healthy enough to be here. Uh, We all have this discretionary time and some discretionary income. And we can understand, we can hear and understand and relate to what we're doing here. That's great. And... None of it's guaranteed tomorrow. 
okay, this is this is an adult fact of life. You know, this is this is. You know, it's hard to it's hard to grok, isn't it? It's like, yeah, it's true. And yeah, but yeah, but yeah, but what can we do about it? Well, that's 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 it. That's what the Buddha saw. The Buddha saw this, and I mean, the Bodhisattva saw this and said, "Yeah, well, what what can we do about that? What can he do about that?" So that kind of that kind of understanding was motivating his search for solution. Again, I miss this this part or this kind of this understanding of dukkha because for a long time I just thought, well, I just haven't got it together yet. I just haven't got my career together. I haven't got my finances together. I haven't got my retirement together. And it's, it's just my personal limitation of not quite having gotten my security together yet. And every one of us feels that, <laughs> you know, at some level. You know, whether it's health or finances or whatever it is. And it's not personal in the sense of it's not your fault. It's not my fault. This is the universal condition that all beings live with. Whether you're royalty or poverty or beggar, whether you have a ton of money and you live in the West or you have zero money and you live in the anywhere else, males, females or other, I did, you know, we all have this same condition. Unless we think that, oh, those who live over there or have that kind of job or that kind of finances or this, this, they live in this country or that country, they don't have it. Think about it. Of course they do. They have just as much insecurity and vulnerability as you have felt. If you're willing to open to it, if you're willing to uh, take a look. And so this is also hard to see, hard to see exactly, hard to understand exactly what the Buddha is pointing to. There's a, as if these two weren't enough, there's a, there's a third meaning or experience of life that's also called dukkha or referred to as dukkha, and it has two Two flavors, the macro view and the micro view. And the macro view goes like this. We're born. And our parents and other primary caregivers doing the best they can take care of us. They bathe us. They feed us. They clothe us. They cuddle us. They love us. They coo us. They poop us. They do everything they can to keep us happy. Because if we're not happy, they're not happy. And they do that 24-7 until they can finally enlist their brothers and sisters, your aunts and uncles and neighbors and peers and anyone else, siblings, anyone else that will help train you to take on the burden yourself, (laughs) basically. And so we have to eventually get the message, this is one of those... uh, not adult facts of life. This is one of those pre-teenage facts of life. You've got to take care of yourself. Okay, so this means now we have to do our own bathing, clothing, dressing, entertaining, uh, keeping yourself you know, happy as best you can. And we know, we get the message really quick that you're going to have to eat for your whole life. 
And so if you want to eat, you're going to have to have money to buy the food. And to get the money to buy the food, you've got to have a job. And to get a good job that's going to be able to provide you and all of your uh, family with the food that you need to survive, you need to go to college. Or you need to go to school, if not college or more, for 12, 16, or 20 years. There's some dukkha. <laughs> and at the end of which, you get this job. Now you have to go to work every day. And at the end of work, every day, you've got to go to the grocery store. So you jump in your car, when everybody else is jumping into their car, you drive to the grocery store, and you get out, you go in, you pick up this little cart, you run up and down the aisles, picking things off the shelf, you know, that you might like to eat, you know, and then you wait in line to check out, get it all bagged up, take it out to the car, get in your car, drive home through the traffic, get home, take everything out of the car, take it into the kitchen, unpack it all, put everything in the covers, refrigerator, the freezer, you know, fold up the bags, put it in the thing, Whew. Make yourself a drink. Go sit down in the living room. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Half hour later, you get up, go back into the kitchen, take everything out. <laughs> Chop, shred, do, fry, stir, this and that. You spend 45 minutes making a meal, set it on the table, and whoever's in the household comes and eats, and in 10 minutes it's gone. <laughs> then you've got to clean up the mess. And you take and put all the garbage away, and put everything away, and put plastic containers, put it in the freezer, put it in the thing, take it all, <clears throat> put all the dishes in the dishwasher, go to the toilet to take care of your own thing. And you're going to do that every day, forever. <laughs> and that's just to feed yourself. We have to bathe, we have to groom, we have to dress ourselves, and you have to go shopping to get all that stuff. And you have to do it every day. You can't get, nobody else will do it for you. Oh, well, you can, you can enlist, you know, your help of some partners or neighbors or other family members, and they'll do for you what you'll do for them. Okay? So, well, we, we kind of work out an arrangement to somehow take care of this body. But this is the easy part. We have this mind. We have this mind that, you know, we have to keep the mind entertained. We have to keep it distracted, we have to keep it happy, we have to keep it busy, because if we don't, it's going to be like being on retreat your whole life. <laughs> right? Right? It's like doing nothing, it's like you'll just be bored, stiff. So you've got, you've got to keep it busy, or you're just going to get depressed, you'll get anxious, you get fretful, you'll be bored. So we have to keep it entertained. And you have to do this to the mind and for the body every day for... One, two, three, four, five, six, six, seven, decades, decades, every day. And you have to do it. Nobody can do it for you. Right? At the end of our time on earth, our friends go to our closet. They pick out the best clothes that we've purchased and haven't yet worn, put it on this cold, stiff, body, put it in a nice shiny box, and we all, and they all say goodbye. And then into the furnace or into the ground it goes, the end. Some would say, that was a bad investment. <laughs> I mean, we laugh because this is one perspective that we don't want to see. 
And of course, if all we're doing is just taking, carrying this body and mind to the grave, as, indulging in as much pleasantness as we can, frankly, we're wasting our time. Because there's so much more that we can do. When we realize this is, this is, this is it, this is what this human life's all, all about, from one perspective, and we see so many people not able to do that skillfully, suffering. If we can use our life to help others navigate their same obligations as we have, we can make something of our life. We can do something of value with our life. But if we're just trying to keep ourselves entertained, distracted until you know, the big fire or the big hole in the ground, Waste of time. So this is oppressive. Just the, just the burden of carrying this body and mind around every day is oppressive. We have to do it too. That's the macro view. The micro view is we have these six sense doors. Eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, mind. And they are constantly being stimulated. There is never a moment go by that they aren't constantly being stimulated. You can close your eyes, you still see visions. You can close your ears, you still have tintinitis. You, can, you can't shut the body off from feeling sensations. And look at the mind. Can you stop the mind from harassing you? Sure. And it's going all the time. Is it any wonder that people, you know, self-medicate themselves right into oblivion? Or distract themselves with busyness? or anything else, just to keep from, well, having to be aware of this constant stimulation. It's oppressive. It's just like there's no relief, really. You can't get away from it. If you're aware, if you're aware of it. That's why awareness is so hard. Because this is what we wake up to. This is what we become aware of. This is the way it is. Ooh. So again, this is this is kind of this oppressive and continual and incessant, constant stimulation. This is the first noble truth. So the Buddha said, you know, there's, the, there's this truth of dukkha. And, uh, you know, all beings experience it. And, uh, you know, we think, anyone who thinks we're going to get ahead of the crowd and not experience so much dukkha, you can see it's like, what a... What a what a false promise that is. Right? Okay. Sure. <clears throat> so, dukkha has these three meanings. And, you know, who else is sharing these adult facts of life with you but Dharma teachers? Really? Anybody? Not many. No. So if we if we understand this, or to the degree that we understand, to the degree that we begin to crack open the crack open the conditioning of our you know society, our social conditioning, family conditioning that kind of keeps that all under wraps, we start cracking that open and we start to see this, we start to feel this, and it's not so hard really. Uh, you just have to be a little bit awake, a little bit aware. Then you can begin to, you know, follow your, follow your interest, or follow your your understanding, follow the unfolding of your your own heart and mind. Some would say, 
you know, why should I do this practice? Why should I do this and wake up to all of this dukkha? To sit, as we do here, only exposes this dukkha. I mean, we, don't, right? I mean, wasn't today difficult <laughs> at times? Yeah, and for many different reasons. And we think somehow that, or some people may think, oh, this, this kind of meditation makes this dukkha happen. But actually this dukkha is already here and happening. This practice just shows it to us, just exposes us to it. Right? It doesn't make, it doesn't cause dukkha. The conditions of dukkha are ever-present. Mindfulness reveals it to us. Because only when we know of this first noble truth of dukkha can we do anything about it. If we don't know about it, we'll just continue on our happy treadmill of, of just trying to take care of ourselves. So practice, like we're doing here, is to investigate this first noble truth because it is so hidden beneath our conditioning that we don't see it. Not to say that we don't suffer, but we suffer thinking there's something wrong with us. But actually, there's nothing wrong with us when we, re- when we really realize the truth of dukkha and suffer. So the Buddha looked at this condition and wondered, as we might too, well, why? Why is it that we suffer so much? Why is it that we have this burden of dukkha to bear? And he discovered, realized, that all of this is caused by craving. Craving in the form of wanting, desire, uh, seeking after, being identified with, wanting experience if you will. Well, we want things. We want knowledge. We want experience. We want to be entertained. We want pleasantness in our life. We seek, the Buddha said, three things. We seek pleasantness in all of its forms. Physical pleasure, mental pleasure, emotional pleasure, social pleasure, spiritual pleasure, political pleasure, all kinds of pleasant experience. Because when any of them are unpleasant, it's clear. That's dukkha. And so we think, well, if I can get... Now, I, I almost still believe, but 40 years of practice has allowed me to begin to question this assumption that I have in my mind. And let me just run it by you. Have you ever had this assumption that if you could just get what you want, then you'd be happy? <laughs> I mean, that, that, that's kind of like, you know, the promise, isn't it? If you get what you want, you'll be happy. The Buddha said, if you get what you want, you'll get what you want. But you'll also not be happy. You know? Why is that? Because, well, if we don't get what we want, clear, that, that's suffering. If you, can't, if you can't have what you need or you can't get what you want, even if it's unreasonable, yeah, still there's some level of unhappiness. But if you get what you want, bear with me now, if what you want is alive, it could be a plant, it could be a pet, it could be another person. 
they too are susceptible to old age, sickness, and death. Okay, got to bear with that. If what you want is valuable, well, you have to earn the money to get it, and then you have to insure it, it'll probably be taxed, it's vulnerable to be stolen, and it's no, it's no guarantee. If what you want is digital, it'll be outdated in six months. <laughs> if it's made of metal, it'll rust. And everything changes and eventually falls to dust. Anyway. What is it that you want now? <laughs> I mean, it, it doesn't last, does it? And, and, you know, even when you get something, you finally, you see what you want, you kindly, you pursue it, you get whatever, all the resources you need to get it, you get it. How long are you actually happy? Until somebody takes and you know keys your new car, <laughs> you know, or until you find out your car has been recalled. Oh, oh no! Found out your new Samsung phone has been recalled <laughs> because I, I worked so hard to get that phone. Turn it in. We can't use it. Things like that happen. Okay, so we want pleasant things, and yet they don't really bring satisfaction. <clears throat> The Buddha said, we also want continued existence. Now, let's not get too esoteric about that. What does this mean? It means we want to keep on doing what we're doing. Well, think about it. Did you have planning mind today? Planning mind. Did you plan, uh, you know, a better future in paradise elsewhere? <laughs> we're always planning for better conditions, Right? Do we ever make plans for worse conditions? We make contingency plans just in case, but mostly we imagine things being better. And so we make these plans and we, we are imagining a future where we'll be happier. But this that we're doing now is the future that we planned last week. And so you can see what happens is when you finally get to the future where you think you're going to be happy, you're, have, you're making other plans for future futures. And you keep looking for happiness in all the wrong places. This is samsara. We keep looking. We, you know what? We have pursued everything already. <laughs> Lots. We've already tasted all of it. Still not satisfied. Think about that. And then the Buddha said there was one more thing that we want. We want it all to end. <laughs> we, want, we just want to get rid of it. We just want, you know, there are times, you know, like, did you have a painful sitting today? Or did you have a tormented mind during the sitting today? And you just thought, I wish this was over. I wish I could get rid of this. Right? Well, just extrapolate that into much worse conditions and you'll, you'll see. We want it just to all end. You just want to get rid of it. You just want... We crave, the Buddha said, the end of existence. As long as I don't have to experience this, great. We don't know what that means, but we still crave it. Okay. So then, here we are. We've woken up a little bit to the fact of life is unsatisfactory. And now we're here on a spiritual retreat because, hey, you know, the material world doesn't do it for us. So how about the spiritual world? So we come on retreat. What do we want on retreat? A good sitting. Right? As one of, our, 
<laughs> One of our students said, nothing like a good sitting to, sitting to ruin the rest of your day. <laughs> because you have a good sitting. You know, you wake up in the morning, the morning, the sitting before breakfast, quiet, still, the body's not yet tired, no, no aches and pains. You sit down, it's great. Wow. Then you come back after breakfast thinking you're going to pick it up where you left off. <laughs> it's not like that. You know, if you're forever looking for the good sitting again. It doesn't come. Bummer. <laughs> but the Buddha said, this second noble truth is to be abandoned. This craving is to be abandoned. Our practice here, abandoned sounds like, Puh! it's not that. It's about letting go. Learning what it means to let go of craving. To let go of not just things, not just experience, but to, but to let go of the holding on. That's what we're learning. That's what we're learning here, is how to let go of each moment's experience, really. How to let go of our views and opinions about our experience. How to let go of our preference for what we're not having and our aversion to what we are experiencing. Letting go is hard. Letting go is hard. And yet, this you, we can see if dukkha is caused by craving and holding on, the path, the practice, has got to be learning how to let go. Well, if the Buddha had realized the two noble truths, there's the truth of dukkha caused by craving, good luck, <laughs> what, what would we do? We'd be, we'd be in a heck of a fix. But luckily he came up with two more truths. The third noble truth is there is an end to craving, there is an end to dukkha. Now, this is a hard one to believe. I, I should give as much time to the third noble truth as I do to the first, but I don't, unfortunately. I can talk for a half hour on the first noble truth in about three minutes on the third noble truth. But there is the end of dukkha. You know, there is the end of craving. <laughs> and sometimes when we hear about the Buddha's teachings of the third noble truth, you know, they're talking about nibbana, enlightenment, the unconditioned, it's something, you know, kind of far off, out there, possibly, maybe, good theory, I don't know. Uh, and yet, here we are, making all this effort. So, forget all that. What is being here, doing what we're doing, have to do with letting go? Really. What's it have to do with the Third Noble Truth? Many ways. First way, we hear about this remembering to recognize the present moment's experience. And try as we can, try as best we can, we often find that we're lost in thought. And when we're lost in thought, as I've said, we don't know. We don't know we're lost. We're totally oblivious. Well, when I first started practicing, it was a couple of years after I got out of college. When I was going to college, I was studying engineering back in the day when we didn't have handheld you know, calculators. It was all done on slide roll. And a lot of math, a lot of longhand math or long mind math. And so I, I was very good at doing a lot of math and doing calculations in, in my head. And so when I went on my first retreat, and my mind wandered, it wandered into 
mathematical calculations. Let's see, this is about 30 foot by... How many cubic feet in here? Blah, blah, blah. You know, and, and I'd be going... And I'd remember to recognize the present moment and say, do I need to be doing this now? When we recognize that we're well, we're, we're just caught up in something that we're oblivious to, that has no significance, there's no value, it's no, not important, it's just a habit, then we can let go. We, it, not even that we have to let go. It, we, as soon as we notice it, we let go. And I would like you to notice what happens in the moment that you come out of a train of thought where you've been unaware. Before you go back to your primary object, before you do anything else, what do you experience? A moment of relief. The mind lets go of what it's kind of... <coughs> relief. It's quick, because soon we pick up another thing to go <laughs> hang on to and, and carry on with. But if you recognize that moment of relief you realize letting go is really powerful because it shows us the mind that's not attached, not holding on to anything. It doesn't last, but still, nevertheless, we get a glimpse. So now we practice, as we do here, for several days, and gradually the momentum of the mindfulness increases meaning we're more continuously mindful. Instead of being once every 10 minutes, it's, you know, and when, when the mind is letting go in each moment, moment after moment after moment after moment after moment, the mind stays secluded from these uh, torments that I spoke about the other night. You know, the mind doesn't get entangled in wanting and desire and fear and frustration and anxiety and all of these unconscious habits of mind. The mind just stays present with this, with this, with this, with this, not picking it up, not having to let it go. There is a kind of relief in the secluded mind. A dukkha-free zone, if you will, where we're not holding on. We just see this is this, this, this. This, this. And so the continuity of mindfulness results in a continuity of relief from grasping, from holding, from clinging. Yeah, there's still a steady stream of experience, but we're not pushing it away. We're not holding on. We're not looking for anything else. We're just seeing. This kind of seclusion of mind can lead to all the spiritual goodies of calmness, uh, clarity, uh, knowledge, uh, strong, uh, strong, strong faith, you know, exuberant faith, uh, joy to the extent of ecstasy, uh, bliss, uh, tranquility, non-reactivity of equanimity, all, all the things that we'd like to be having most of the time, you know, the spiritual goodies. And in some spiritual traditions, these are the goal. Ecstasy, union with, the, union with all things, union with God, if you will. This is the goal. 
But in this practice we realize, oh, this is just another experience to hold on to, to, to get identified with, to grasp as something, finally, a relief. And so it takes some, you know, takes some learning how to experience these spiritual goodies and not hold on. And when we do, then the mind moves on and the, the, the development of the mind grows and it grows in the direction of balance. Balance and equanimity where whatever the mind opens to, whatever the mind receives, whatever the mind knows in the present moment, it sees, it knows clearly, and it doesn't have a reaction. It, does, it has no aversion to, and it has no attraction for. And when the mind finds this place of balance, this equanimity, we call it equanimity, when the mind is not pulled or pushed away or toward anything, and the mind is very light, connected, I mean, living in the world, not, not avoiding anything, but also not being entangled in anything, not, be, not holding on, not having to let go. So this state itself is a very subtle state of mind, which feels very dukkha-free. Okay? In this, with this development of mind, we see not only the moment's experience, but we see the, what I call the three characteristics, the three universal characteristics. We gain the knowledge that everything we experience is impermanent. It just comes and it's fleeting. It just goes by. It's there for a split second and it's gone. It's there, for, it's gone, it's there, it's gone. When you have that understanding, when that is the realization in each moment of your experience, the mind doesn't reach to hold on to what it knows is not there in the next moment. So there's no letting go. There's no reaching to hold on. And so the mind knows this. This is, this is the knowledge that the mind has. This is the insight. And so the mind doesn't reach for anything. This insight into impermanence, into the Anicca characteristic, very liberating. Liberating from suffering. Frees you from suffering. If you don't hold on, there's no dukkha. The second insight is the insight into dukkha. And when we see the present moment's experience, and we understand, we realize that this experience has the characteristic of dukkha. It is either painful, or it is unstable, meaning it doesn't last, or it's oppressive. When you know that something is painful, or you know that it is unstable, doesn't last, or you know that it's just oppressive, why would you reach for it? The mind doesn't reach for it. The mind knows this experience, this thing, this whatever it is that is being experienced, has the characteristic of dukkha. And when it does, when it knows that, the mind doesn't reach for anything. It doesn't have to let go of anything. It never even reaches for it. This too is a dukkha-free zone. No holding, no dukkha. The third characteristic is the anatta characteristic. It really points to the conditioned nature of all experience. Things arise due to causes and conditions. They really don't have any inherent substance to them. 
Whatever we experience is because of other things coming together to create this experience. It's like a rainbow in the sky. A rainbow in the sky is a colorful appearance due to causes and conditions. Moisture, sunlight, and the angle of viewing. Those causes and conditions make a rainbow appear. It looks like there's something substantial there, a rainbow. But nobody has ever packaged a rainbow and sent it to somebody else. It's not possible. It is ephemeral. It's conditioned. Everything in our life is like that. A colorful appearance to the causes and conditions. We may not know the causes and conditions, but it's a colorful appearance that has no inherent substance of its own. When you know that, when the mind knows this, when the mind realizes this characteristic, it doesn't. Re- Nobody's ever going to reach for a rainbow. Well, maybe a kid. You know, but no reach for rainbows. Why would we? Why would we reach for any other colorful appearance due to similar causes and conditions? When you don't reach, you don't hold, you don't have to let go. No dukkha. So these. In these insights that we are moving towards as we notice our moment-to-moment experience bring this relief from holding on. Bring this relief from dukkha. Just through the insight. So while the experience of dukkha is painful, the realization of dukkha or the understanding of dukkha is liberating. So all that I talked about, dukkha, if we just experience it, it's painful. If we understand it, we can be free of its suffering. This is our practice. This is why we do this work. There's more to be said, uh, even about the third noble truth and certainly the fourth noble truth, and I'll share more of that in the coming days. But just so you know that what we're doing here is developing this Ability to remember, to recognize the present moment, so that we see these three characteristics. And when we see these three characteristics, we're on the path of liberation. We're moving towards less clinging, less holding, and therefore less dukkha. This path of understanding, realization, brings us to the end of suffering the end of dukkha, all that dukkha that I mentioned. So let's sit for a moment and let these words all quiet down. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.